Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times. Philosophy for Our Times is brought to you in partnership with the New College of the Humanities, a university-level college offering undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in the heart of London. NCH pride themselves on offering unprecedented access to a world-class academic faculty. Philosophy students at the college are taught by some of the foremost scholars in the field, and one-to-one tutorials create a personalised teaching experience. Choose your major and minor for a unique combined honours degree and study the NCH Diploma to widen your appreciation of the world in ways you'd never thought of before. Go to nchlondon.ac.uk for more information. Think better. Think NCH. From Greek theatre to Nigella Lawson, this week, Lawrence Scott reveals how to negotiate the newly obscene times we are living in. Tracing obscenity in the changing face of the public and private self in the digital era, Lawrence asks, can we still find a space for private feelings? Sentiment analysts, smart clothing and selfies suggest otherwise. Yet, could a new brand of politics emerge when the stage walls come down? In search of this new reality, this week's podcast is hosted by award-winning writer Lawrence Scott, author of Four Dimensional Human, and on the topic of this week's podcast, Picnic, Lightning, a BBC Radio 4 book of the week. So the theme for this little half-hour talk will be the obscenity of the present moment. We're going to be thinking about inside-out lives. Um, this is basically one chapter um, in my new book, Picnic, Lightning. And just to um, describe the book very briefly, um, I was very... When I started writing the book, it was right before the Brexit vote. It was a few months before uh, Trump's election. And even then, I noticed that these were strange times for reality because a lot of our sort of more technological progress was focusing on um, ideas of virtual reality and augmented reality. And that seemed to be a a new frontier, Um, you know, being able to sit in your kitchen and put a headset on and suddenly there's a coral reef there um, while you're in the kitchen as well. And augmented reality, you can go around a museum, hold your phone up and be given all these sort of extra bits of data, sort of augmenting your real experience. But it seemed to me that um, we hadn't really got our hands fully on the ropes when it came to the nuts and bolts of our everyday realities, uh, just the physical surroundings, what it's like to be in a room um, with solid tables, solid chairs. It seemed a bit sort of previous or rather um, precocious to suddenly start going on and saying we have this solid base that we call reality and then we're going to make it virtual and make it augmented. And really, um, one of the main ways that I thought our reality was being sort of challenged or compromised in these times is many reasons. But one of the ways I felt that our public private reality, our private realities and our public realities were becoming dangerously merged together. 
um, and that we were no longer had a clear division between the private reality, perhaps, of the home, of our bodies, of our private thoughts, and how we manifest in the public sphere. So there's just a few things that I talk about in the book before we get to the idea of obscenity, which sort of uh, are on this theme of the collapse of the public and private uh, reality. And one of them is the Internet of Things. And my editor was saying, oh, don't write about the Internet of Things. Everyone knows about it already. And I could never tell whether the Internet of Things is one of those things that everyone knows about or that no one knows. So it's the, sort of the ability to sort of link into sort of networks, household objects such as a fridge here. And there was a lot of um, sort of scandal about a fridge. Fridges aren't normally scandalous things, but uh, Samsung developed an, a smart fridge. If it has smart on it, it usually means it's connected to the Internet of Things. It's the ecosystem of appliances in your house, in your house perhaps that can be sort of um, controlled remotely and communicate with other devices. And there was a Samsung fridge which leaked, and it didn't leak water, which my fridge often does, but it leaked um, people's Gmail passwords. So it was, a, it was sort of a soft target in the home security system so that you could, um, your sort of private details could be hacked through this um, uh, fridge. So no one liked that. But the Internet of Things is interesting for me because you know that feeling at the end of the day when you realize that you're out of public life for the day, you're closing down the house, you're turning the lights off room by room, and there's a sense of sort of fortification that this is me in my um, private sphere, I'm no longer in public. And to me, the very idea of the Internet of Things compromises this idea by the, uh, the sense that our household belongings are off out somewhere else, up in the cloud, communicating, sending data, receiving data. That the really sort of solid walls of the home, which really have been sort of a psychological and emotional buttress for humans for a long time, are, are being sort of rewired, and the home is m much more porous than it used to be. Um, and Tommy Hilfiger has launched a new brand of smart wearable clothing. It's called their Connect series, or their Go Explore with the Connect Tommy Hilfiger range. And basically, it's clothes with Bluetooth in it. So if you're wearing a Tommy Hilfiger Bluetoothed up um, piece of clothing, when you walk by shops, you get rewards on your phone. You become a little brand ambassador for them. Um, they're able to track where you are at all times. They know what you're buying, you know, if you're buying from them or not, etc. So there's this idea that they're sort of the, one of the most private relationships we have is the cloth on our bodies and the fact that even that is being sort of linked in. Um, and there was a designer, a sort of a tech designer in 2014 who um, predicted that the future of wearables would go way beyond just the Fitbit and how many steps and your heart rate and stuff and move into clothing itself. Um, and he said what would be really exciting for him as a third party sort of advertiser would be, be to be able to tell how we were feeling, how our heart rate was doing, how various biometrics we're reading in our body, it's like we were strapped up to an ICU device at all times through our clothing. And then through the, that biometric data, he'd be able to, what he said, give me rele relevant offers through my phone, depending on how the clothes were telling him that I was feeling at any one moment. So some people find this a bit alarming, but it all speaks to this way in which the private self and the public self is becoming um, rendered much more of a hybrid. Um, so influences for those who don't know, as sort of a generic term for someone who's amassed such a large online following, say on Instagram, they may have 80,000 followers on Instagram. And as such, advertisers will pay them to advertise their products. Now, this isn't especially new. We've had spokespeople for many years. But it's, it's unusual that so many so-called ordinary citizens are becoming poster people for brands. And how it works is within sort of the everyday life of the influencer, they may have regular 
photographs of themselves, but then one will be a sponsored post in which they're wearing a paid, uh, these sunglasses, for instance, may have been, she may have been paid to wear them. But unless you click on the image um, and see some of the captions, you won't necessarily know what is the sponsored item. You know, by law, you have to say this is an ad or a sponsored partnership with someone in the fine print somewhere. But if you're just scrolling through these pages, um, it's very hard to sort of tell what is sort of someone's personal choice and what is a commercial relationship. And I had a bit of a dream that I never have prophetic dreams while I was writing this book, but I had one in which I was thinking about influences. And I had a dream about a little boy in the near future, and also the little boy was me. Um, so it's one of those dreams. But this little boy was at a restaurant and looking through the menu, and he couldn't decide what to have. And he said to his parents, um, oh, you know what? I just can't remember what I actually like and what I'm paid to like. Um, and I thought that was sort of a di very dystopic, high-concept vision of the future. Um, and in 2016, there was a notorious selfie of Kim Kardashian in which she posed herself naked in her bathroom and she put black bars over her private parts herself, which was a funny display of um, sort of self-censorship and self-revelation all at once. And now while that was sort of, that got lots of attention, um, what interested me more was the way in which the backstage view that Kim Kardashian has made her um, sort of bread and butter, as it were, was fully on display. So people might be looking at this selfie of her and thinking, oh, but that, those are the actual pot lights that um, Kim Kardashian has. That's the beige towel in her cream bathroom. And there's a sort of a, a, an insatiable interest that we seem to be cultivating in the behind-the-scenes view all the time. And that's the main argument that I want to propose to you, is that the backstage view or the behind-the-scenes view has become the central view in our digital cultural life. And what are some of the ramifications for that? So here we come to the word obscene and the idea of obscenity. Um, people, when they say, you know, digital life is, the, uh, a big problem of digital life is its obscenity. You might think that we're talking about internet pornography and the proliferation of pornographic images and the huge problem that is causing for young people, especially being doused all the time, saturated in internet pornography. And that's a very real concern and should be talked about. But I, my proposition is that there's another form of obscenity which is uh, arguably more pervasive and structural and sort of now built into the very form of our lives. And what's good for me to make this argument is that the word obscene etymologically has a sort of a forked root. Etymologists aren't quite sure where we get obscene from. Uh, there's the Latin root, obscenum, and senum here refers to sort of filth or muck or sometimes buttocks or genitals. So that's sort of the uh, moral... Uh, moralizing view, which would be linked the obscene to pornography, something so-called filthy or dirty or whatever. But there's also a lot of credible evidence to suggest that obscene comes from the Greek, and, and it comes from obscenaire, and, and that literally means the off-stage or the off-scene perspective, and that's what many people think our idea of obscenity comes from. So what was this uh, little skein or skenaire? Well, this takes us back um, to the 5th century uh, BC in the theater of uh, Dionysus. Um, and that sort of structure here is what the skein grew into. And when you think of Greek plays, it often happens, all the action happens in the forecourt, maybe outside the palace or outside the cave. And then stuff happens behind the scenes that isn't dramatized on the central stage. The skein grew up just as a really um, practical device, as a little wooden structure behind which the actors in the early Greek plays would go 
to change their masks so that we could, they could become one person and then another person. And even the um, Greek word persona is a theater mask. And when we think about our online personas, it's interesting to go back to the Greek roots, Greek roots of that. So the space in the Greek theater was very formally um, set up. You'd have the orchestra there, you'd have the skein there, and all the action would be here, and then actors would come through the skein. And the chorus typically um, wouldn't be allowed to go through the skein doors. The skein eventually, and as you can see in the theater, grew up into this sort of massive sort of facade. But Greek uh, theater is, and tragedy particularly, is full of obscenities. Um, an example of an obscene act is Medea's killing of the children, which happens off stage. And the Greeks had a convention called an echoclima. And what that would be is that would be wheeled out onto the stage, and usually it would be the bodies of the people who'd been killed obscenely backstage with the murderer standing before them. Now, the Greeks would know that even though it's outside, it's on the forecourt of the, of the stage, that really we're still dramatically inside. So it's a total uh, simultaneity of inside and outside. So Greek theater played with this a lot. And it's worth noting that Greek comedies always pointed to the mechanisms. That was one of the definitions of comedy. They'd, they'd make fun of the echoclima. They'd make fun of this clunky inside-out thing. But tragedies never would. The rule of tragedy was you never called attention to the theatrical conventions. The stage was the stage, and it was sealed and proper. And they, these sort of conventions weren't referred to. That becomes important a bit later. <laughs> We're skipping many centuries now to talk about Nigella Lawson. I love uh, watching Nigella's programs. I find them very comforting. Um, I never cook from them, but that's, I don't cook from anyone's recipes, really. But I find her whole shtick, especially in autumnal times, quite cozy. And why I'm bringing Nigella up now is that um, she's a good example of how in our current day, we're being sort of the behind the scenes view is being privileged. So I don't know if you remember in the early 90s or 2000s before Web 2.0, what would be the sort of shtick that Nigella would do at the end of a program? She would go to her fridge, open it and sort of eat some leftovers. And it was all part of her exuberant sort of body positive persona of loving life. And just it was great. Um, I noticed that in later times when everyone's online and tweeting and stuff, uh, the, one of the most latest series would have bloopers at the end where she'd be flubbing uh, the line. And so there was this total um, breaking of the fourth wall and showing the behind the scenes view. On her Twitter feed um, one time, or Instagram feed rather, she posted a picture very much like this of her in the Nigella Christmas kitchen. And she, the caption was, it might be July for you, but for me it's Christmas in the Nigella kitchen. And I thought that was really strange because Nigella has always peddled her, her fantasies with a bit of a wink, but she's never explicitly punctured them and had the fantasy and the reality sitting side by side. And I thought that was a really good emblem for our times, that we have the public persona and its behind-the-scenes workings sort of sitting alongside one another all the time. Since, since live television events have no longer been sort of everyone can watch them at different times. Uh, producers are really encouraging, especially in America, but it's coming here too, encouraging the actors to tweet during the program itself so that it encourages viewers to watch while alongside the actors tweeting. So you can be watching a, you know, a drama like Grey's Anatomy is a good example, and then the actors from it will be saying, oh, that was a great scene, da 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 um, and so you have the actor unmasked in the audience with you and on stage all at once. And this is, this is I think, pretty a fundamental difference in our digital era that, ha that hasn't been capable in the same way before. So we have the public and the private going on at the same time. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? 
If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper. Get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Now, this isn't really such a big problem if it's a new way of consuming culture. It's an interesting new form. But I think this general idea of obscenity, where the backstage and the center stage are on at the same time, um, that sort of has real sort of political consequences. And I'm arguing that we sort of live in the age of the transparent mask. So someone can be masked and unmasked at the same time. Um, and we see this all the time, this the way in which social media is encouraging us to share the behind the scenes views of our lives. And there's a new phenomenon that my American students particularly tell me called Finstagram, fake Instagram. And so people who feel too exposed on their regular Instagram accounts will create a second profile just for their closest friends uh, in which they put pictures where, God forbid, they may not have makeup on or it isn't beautifully lit or it isn't the most loveliest thing they've ever made. But they call that the fake Instagram. I mean, Baudrillard, uh, knock yourself out with that. Um, that the reality is, called, is considered the fake version of themselves and the real Instagram is the doctored, filtered view. So where this sort of influences the political sphere is sort of quite interesting. And there was an interview that George Clooney gave just during the presidential election, which really haunted me and stuck with me. George Clooney was a massive um, Hillary Clinton supporter and organizing these big sort of uh, $135,000 plate fundraisers to raise Democrat money. And there were huge protesters outside one of these fundraisers um, because they, they hated all the money that was flooding into US politics because of the Citizens United Act. And George Clooney gave an interview afterwards talking about this protest. And he said, I'm on the side of the protesters. You know, I hate these fundraisers. I hate doing them. I want the reason why I want Clinton to win is so we can overturn Citizens United and get all this obscene. He said the word obscene amount of money out of American politics. And I thought that was an interesting way in which he was on the one hand being the suave host saying, come to my gala dinner. And then two days later saying, I hate these things or and then as um, a public figure, we're having to um, negotiate these two sort of opposite positions, his private feeling and his public feeling. It's not even, it's beyond hypocrisy. It's just a laying bare of the cynical mechanics of political life. And one of the protesters apparently shouted at him and said, uh, you sucked at Batman. <laughs> and I love this because um, for many reasons, but one of them was that Batman, the main thing about Batman is that he has to maintain a very rigid um, masked view and a very rigid sort of um, delineation between his Bruce Wayne private life and his Batman persona. And the fact that George Clooney sucked at Batman he seemed a, a good resonance of this idea of him not being able to keep his fundraiser mask on and then take it off and go, I hate fundraisers and put it back on again. Um, they also called him a corporate shill, which I don't know if you're following. That was a lot of the... Um, the slogans against Hillary, they're calling her shillery and stuff. And that was her, the, the amount of money she accepted from special interest lobbyist groups. Um, and a shill goes back to the, almost a the theater tradition. It's a carnival term. A carnival shill is the person who works for a stage show and also go in the audience and go, this show's great, this show's great, seeming to be a member of the public but actually working uh, for the sideshow. 
But George Clooney is nothing in obscene politics compared to uh, Donald Trump. But he is sort of the king of obscene politics in the two roots, right? The Latin and the Greek. And um, his Access Hollywood bus ride sort of was a brilliant collision of the two, that famous bus ride that we, many people thought would undo him but didn't, in which he said tons of obscene, grotesque, misogynist things. That was the Latin side of the route. But in that, he was caught accidentally off stage, wasn't he? He was mic'd by accident. This was seemingly a private conversation. Um, and so it, it had elements of the Greek obscenity as well. I just, <clears throat> I just wanted to read you a, a bit from the book at this point, just because there's a lot of quotes in it, um, and it's a bit complicated. But I just wanted you to think about how Donald Trump is always using the, the behind-the-scenes view, not just with tweeting all the time from his sort of bedroom at 11 p.m., but his whole campaign strategy was to undermine normal political structures by calling attention to them in an obscene way. So, as I write, like a good attic comedian of the Greek theater, one of Donald Trump's aims during the election was to call attention to the theatrical necessities of the campaign. Unlike his 59-year-old bus-riding self, he always knew where the cameras were pointed. During the press conference to announce former rival Ben Carson's endorsement of him, Trump voiced his frustration that during his big stadium rallies, the cameras never turn around to show the size of his audiences, even then he was going about audience size. He also unveiled his behind-the-scenes strategies, the ruthlessness of his machinations. After Ben Carson edged ahead in a poll, Trump recalled to the reporters, I said this guy's unbelievable, and so I started going after Ben, and it's politics, and Ben understands that. My Trump impression is impeccable. Trump's strategy all along was to highlight the artificiality and contingencies of the political stage. But it was during this press conference that Ben Carson put the cat amongst the postmodern pigeons. There are two different Donald Trumps, Carson said. There's the one you see on the stage, and there's the one, who, there's the one who's very cerebral, who sits there and considers things very carefully. And that's the Donald Trump that you're going to start seeing more and more of right now. We're still waiting. After a fumbling hug, Trump took over the podium to answer questions, and the journalists in attendance pursued Carson's theory with great interest. They asked Trump to expand on this proposed duality. They used words such as persona, character, and performance. Trump initially agreed with the verdict. I think there are two Donald Trumps. There's the public version, and people see that, and it seems to have worked over my lifetime. But it's probably different, I think, from the personal Donald Trump. Now, while it doesn't seem unreasonable for someone to suggest that they behave differently in public than in private life, Trump is too keen to insist on the inherent falsity of the politician's public life for this distinction to be useful, useful to him. Speaking about campaign financing, he said the past experience in early elections prepared him for this one. I know it from the real side, he claimed, not the politician's side. And so it wasn't long before he distanced himself from Carson's two-Trump model which compromised his position as unmediated and unmasked. I don't think there's two Donald Trumps, he said, adding with a tortuous existentialism worthy of Sartre, I try to be who I am. Um, think of that for a second, I try to be who I am. And now where does this leave us? Someone, a politician who brazenly um, positions himself as an obscene figure who will say, politics is like this, it's corrupt, I will, you know, this is how it all works and I'm going to make it real, and yet profiting from the whole system. And there was a thinker called Herbert Marcuse who said that obscenity of the Latin sort, of the, of the disgusting, sort of crude, swear-wordy kind of obscenity, was an, one mode of resistance that we had. 
He said if someone is taking public office and trying to decorously say awful things, then we can shout insults at them, call them um, pig or whatever, or things like that. But what happens when the person themselves who is taking office no longer abides by the codes of the normal decency and is himself an obscene politician? Those shouts of calling him President Pig in Marcuse's words or saying oink, oink, oink whenever he speaks, when, he, when the oinks are already sort of filtered in naturally by the politician themselves, what's sort of our next act of resistance? And I just wanted to sort of show some of the uh, ramifications for this broader, beyond the politics, this broader view. Um, so all the time, our, our private opinions and private selves are being um, commodified. There's um, a whole new industry now called sentiment analysts who analyze our social media posts to see what mood we're in, what we're feeling at any one time. Our feelings are now a multi-billion dollar industry. Our feelings are a commodity to be mine. And now already in uh, retailers in the States, at least there's um, facial recognition cameras that can track sort of the movements of your eye, that can tell when your eye is dilated in interest over a product. So you're holding up a shirt. You might have a look of interest and someone will then, a salesperson will then come um, to seal the deal. And I think one of our main challenges is negotiating this newly obscene times. And I think a lot of us, you'll notice how often people are in trouble for a, a, a carelessly worded private thought that they then tweet or put online. And I'll often say, oh, I was just thinking out loud. I'm sorry, I didn't think this through. Someone um, I noticed got in some trouble for saying, it's snowing in London on Twitter. And someone else tweeted, um, think, of the, think of rough sleepers, they said. And that's perfectly true. You know, We should think of rough sleepers and work to um, improve the situations for all, all of us. And what was interesting is how do we find the space, or is there a space now for the private um, feelings that may not be for public consumption when we're constantly encouraged to render our obscene thoughts in public. And some people would argue that this has huge progressive political opportunities because if the stage walls come down, it's a bit like an I Claudius, let all the poison that lurks in the mud leach out. You know, a new brand of politics may emerge from this collapsing of the stage walls. But just to end on a, a quick little story, for me, I'm a huge fan of the obscene um, when it comes to the imagination. And the thing about the obscene, obscenity in the Greek sense, is that it has a sort of a joke built into its etymological root. As soon as the obscene appears on stage, it is no longer obscene. So where does the real um, productive obscenity lie? Um, and there's a play by Aristophanes called The Acarnians, in which a guy goes um, to seek some advice from the playwright Euripides, who's up in his room. And he knocks on Euripides' door, and Euripides' slave says, oh, you can't come in. My master is, um, he's not within. He is within, and he's not within. And the man says, what do you mean? He said, well, he, he, Euripides is on it in, in his study, but he's out traveling, wandering the lands of his imagination. And Eurip the man wouldn't take no for an answer, and Euripides says, fine, I'll wheel myself out. And this is an example of the comedy where he came out on the Echoclima, and that really meant to say, I'm still in my study, but everyone can see me. So it was the comic play calling attention to the theatrics and conventions. Um, but I just wanted to read you out the final sort of um, optimism of maintaining a, a true sense of obscenity um, in the world, which isn't one that, about revelation, but is about maintaining a true sense of sort of imaginative privacy. One of the difficulties of engaging with an obscene form of politics is that obscenity of the offstage variety is by definition an impossibility. 
When it manifests in front of the public eye, it is no longer technically obscene. Now, while Euripides gets the laughs with his inside-outside shtick, we might think instead about his slave. Away from the political stage, the slaves remark that the playwright is both within and not within the home because his mind is off wandering in imagined lands, offers us a more seductive, productive paradox. The only stable form of obscenity exists in the imagination, that natural habitat for things that are both real and unreal, and also neither real nor unreal. Our imaginations are often out roaming through hidden rooms, back rooms, far off rooms, long forgotten rooms, filling them with furniture and their own emotional weather. In them, we find those mysteries called other people, whose truly offstage lives we can never witness and which we can only imagine. It's possible that having certain limits to our vision is a necessary precondition for our empathy. To think about the parts of people's lives that we can neither see nor know for certain is an act of generosity. In this generous place between reality and fantasy, the truly obscene both evaporates and holds its mysteries before our wandering eyes. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. For more podcasts, make sure you like and subscribe our page to never miss an episode of Philosophy for Our Times. <laughs>